All right, so we got just a tiny little uh, snafu tonight because I didn't print off my sermon. And so I've got my computer up here because it's on the computer. I, I, we're not getting that high tech or anything. Um, uh, it's just I've got to look at it on here. So um, so if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 37. So we're starting a new series tonight. We're looking through... Um, the story of, of Joseph found in the book of Genesis. So if you've been with us for a little while or if you've, if you've, uh, ever taken a look back at our old sermons, so you'll know that, um, I think back in 2019, we went through the story of Jacob. And then a little bit after that, we went through the story of Abraham or vice versa, maybe. And now we are finally coming to sort of the third character that is emphasized, um, in, in the book of Genesis, and that's the character of Joseph, but it's not just a story about Joseph, and we'll kind of see that as we go throughout the next coming few weeks, but it'll probably take us a few, I'm not sure how many sermons yet, but it's going to be, we're going to be in it for, for six or eight weeks at least, um, as we, as we go through a story that is probably familiar to many of you, if you've, if you've grown up in church, or if you've been a reader of the Bible for very long, and yet one that there's a lot of, uh, cool stuff to discover in that maybe we've not noticed before. So, um, starting in, Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11, it says this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought them a bad, brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheave. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, once again, we come before you um, asking for your blessing and provision as we open up your word. Um, God, we give you thanks for all the many blessings that have come from this um, Christmas season. God, we thank you for uh, the new year and and all the new things that you have in store for us as a church, for us as families, for us as individuals. Um, as we enter into 2024, God, we ask for, um, your blessing and provision. God, we ask that you would bring revival into our lives. God, that you would work in each one of our hearts to, 
to renew it, to stir our hearts up, um, God, to, to break through um, the hardened ground of our hearts so that you could do new work in them. God, that you would open our eyes to things that we have missed in the past. Um, God, that you would bring us close to your son, Jesus Christ, and make us more like him. God, we, we know that you have good and great plans for your people. Um, and we ask that, um, you would help us to be faithful and that those fan, th- uh, plans would come to fruition by your providence. God, we pray for revival in general throughout our community. We pray that, uh, each church in Blunt County, um, God would be a, would be a embassy, would be a center for, um, the going forth of the gospel in the various communities that they represent. Um, Father, we pray for the efforts of the Awake 21, um, special preaching, um, nights as a number of churches in our, uh, our, our community, including Pleasant Grove Mother Church, um, join together, um, for these special times of, of special preaching and unity, uh, across dom- denominations working to, to reach our community. God, we ask that you would, would pour out your blessing there, that we often pray for unity. We've been talking about unity in, in so many of the different, um, places in the scriptures that we have looked recently. We ask that you would bring unity among the, the Bible proclaiming gospel teaching churches of Blount County, um, that we would work together knowing that we are allies, um, that we serve, um, the same God and the same King, um, the same master, Jesus Christ, and that we are here, um, to see his kingdom, um, move forward. Uh, not our own kingdoms. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us um, as churches um, to to work together, God, and as we work together and as we bring the message of the gospel to our community, that your spirit would go ahead of us, tilling up the soil of, of hardened hearts, planting um, as we plant the good seed on that ground, God, that you would cause it to grow. God, as we water, um, as as we nurture it, God, you give the growth, uh, and we pray that you would bring a harvest of, of 20, 40, 60, 100 times what we have sown. Um, God, your word promises this. We see the pictures of those things in it. We ask that you would do those things in our community. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Um, the story of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis is, is a story of a person who is faithful to God. There's a lot of different things that we could focus in on and we will and talk about over the course of the next few weeks as we, as we look at the story. But, but one of them is the faithfulness of Joseph for sure. Uh, Joseph stands unquestionably as one of the most faithful and righteous figures of the Old Testament scriptures. So sometimes we'll talk about the fact that when you look at the Old Testament, the patriarchs and, and different characters or whatever, um, you are struck very quickly that, that the Bible is not a book that tells stories of good people, okay? Um, the stories that we see are of people who are very broken and flawed and have lots of issues, um, and yet occasionally there are people who are used of God in a specific way, um, who, who live in a, a kind of life that is more faithful and more righteous and, 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 um, more closely follows God and what he has called us to. And, and Joseph is, is one of those stories. Um, and it is a story of his righteousness in spite of the suffering that he goes through in spite of all of these difficult things uh, that Joseph will experience. And there's a particular point to that. 
And it's something that we are going to play off of the entire time we go through the book. Because the story of Joseph is not just a story about a righteous man. We could read this story and just sort of take some moral principles from it and and see a person who is faithful to God, and, and that would be beneficial. But I think the case is, is that the story of Joseph is perhaps the most, if not one of the most, at least one of the most, um, the greatest prefigurings of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Meaning um, the story of Joseph is is a um, a foreshadowing of the life and ministry and coming of Jesus Christ in a particular way and in a unique way compared to just about any other character in the scripture. And we use, we use a phrase when we talk about this. We say that there are types in the Old Testament that foretell things coming in the New Testament. Okay. There are types and, and think about it the way we use the word prototype. Okay. There is a forerunner. There is a foreshadowing. There is a prediction that points us to a fulfillment in the New Testament. And what I'm saying to you is that um, Joseph is a forerunner of Jesus Christ. His life and suffering and ministry is, is painting a picture for us of what Jesus Christ will look like and how Jesus Christ will fulfill it. So many of you are familiar with the stories of, of C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. And he makes a comment about those stories. He says, I didn't write those stories to be allegories. An allegory is when you take these events, one, two, three, four, five, and then you write a story where one, two, three, four, five, they are represented, right? That's what an allegory does. And C.S. Lewis said, I didn't write an allegory. What I wanted to do was write a story so that the themes and ideas that arose in my story, that maybe a young child would read those stories, and then years later come to the scriptures and read the scriptures and have those categories already in place of a sacrificial dying king, of a king who is soon to return, of, of those kind of ideas, right? And that's sort of the thing that we're, that we're looking at here. It's that the Old Testament is giving us these, these types, these ideas that are going to point us to the things that Christ is going to come and fulfill eventually. <clears throat> So, again, it, it prefigures those things. Joseph is not Jesus. He has not accomplished salvation in the way that Jesus accomplishes it. But he paints a picture of it and prepares our hearts by giving us those patterns and categories that we will see in the coming of Christ. And we see that at various places in the story. So, um, but obviously the story holds a lot of meaning in and of itself as well. It points us to Christ, but it also gives us sort of a cautionary tale about the way the world is and about the way our hearts can be. And, and it's a story of faithfulness and courage and, and things to emulate and things to avoid. But there's also a sense in which that morality that it is teaching us is also typological too, because it's pointing to something else. It's saying, you know what? There is a righteousness that we can have, but it is not an ultimate righteousness. The ultimate righteousness that we see in Joseph is only going to be found completely in Jesus Christ and the life that he has. And so we see those, those, the, the, the back and forth as, as the Old Testament prefigures the New Testament and the New Testament fulfills and brings to fruition the Old Testament. Okay. And so that's how we're going to kind of go through the whole book. So I can't remember what. We start in chapter 37. It goes through the end of the book, and we're not going to quite go that far, but we're going to go through most of, of Joseph's stories. And we're going to begin here in verse 1 and sort of think back 
to the idea of how dysfunctional Joseph's family was. So it starts in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourns, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations, it says, of Jacob. So that word generations is this word that pops up ten times throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, you can use that word as a sort of chapter heading divider for the major sections of Genesis. And basically what the idea of that word is, it is the idea of a family history. Okay, so it's essentially saying this is the family history of the character of Jacob or the character of Isaac or the character of Adam or whoever it precedes. So the book of Genesis uses that word 10 times, and this is the last one. This is the last time it uses that idea. This is the generation of Jacob. And after this, we will finish out the book. And so there's something important to be said right there, is that although we're going to focus in on the character of Joseph over the next few weeks, Joseph is not the only person who this passage is concerned with. It is concerned with the family, the whole family of the patriarch Jacob. Because, again, while it's certain that we will zoom in on Joseph, he's not the only character. He's not the only important character. Uh, Judah, in particular, is going to play a major role in several of the stories. He's even going to have his own little side story um, that, that, that where he goes off and, and it's not connected to the rest of it. Um, other brothers of, of jo- Jacob's children will play bigger or greater, lesser roles in, in the story. But by the end of Genesis... Um, what we're going to see is that, that what this whole last section is about is about the reclamation of Jacob's family and about the forming them into not only a family, but into a people who will be the beginnings of the nation of Israel, right? They will be the, they will be the, the ancestral heads of the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. And, um, if you're familiar with the story, so again, it's been a few years, 2019, 2020, since we've talked about these stories. Um, but if you're familiar with the stories in Genesis, you will remember that Jacob and his family are pretty much a mess, right? It is a mess of a family. I looked back and, and one of the sermon titles uh, that I used back when we were, were talking about the life of Jacob, I called it the black hole family. Right. That's maybe a little strong, but that's what it feels like sometimes when you are watching uh, the life of Jacob and his children play out. It is just this this horrific mess. Um, and that can can, I think, resonate with a lot of people. It resonates because we look to our own family sometimes and we say, man, I got all kinds of nonsense in my family. I've got these broken situations. I've got these relationships that are in shambles. Um, and there's something for us to learn as we look to this story. But let me give you kind of a quick recap of Jacob's story. And, and you're, again, you may be more familiar with it than some people are, but let me kind of set the stage as we highlight, as we, as we step into the life of Joseph, but highlighting first uh, the life of Jacob. So you remember Jacob was a twin. Um, he had a twin brother whose name was Esau. Jacob was the favorite of his mother. Esau was the favorite of his father, who is Isaac, the patriarch. Um, and yet Jacob, whose name means grasper, cheats his brother Esau out of both the birthright and the inheritance. Um, 
He runs for his life because his brother is murderously wrathful and going to kill his brother for stealing his birthright and inheritance. Um, don't forget the fact that the way he stole the birth, I mean, the inheritance was by lying to his poor, old, blind father. Um, great guy, Jacob, right? So he runs from his life to his father's, uh, to his mother's family who live in a distant country. There he meets his two cousins who are sisters, and he ends up marrying both of them. He falls in love with the pretty one, um, but is duped by the father-in-law to marry the ugly one first. Um, irrespective of his affections for them, though, the ugly one is fertile, the pretty one is barren, and in this culture, that carries a whole lot of weight. And so, um, despite the fact that he loves the pretty one, um, he has children with, um, with the less pretty one. Maybe that's a nicer way of saying it. Um, this Jerry Springer-esque, uh, Play for primacy ensues where wives are handing over their servant girls to Jacob as concubines in this escalating arms race of producing sons and, and gaining uh, influence. Uh, Jacob lies and cheats and steals his way to prosperity, mainly cheating his own family members. Um, finally incurring the, the anger of his father-in-law, who he has to again basically sneak out in the middle of the night to run for his life from uh, with bickering and jealous family in tow, um, only to get out towards in the wilderness, heading back towards his ancestral homeland to find out that his brother is just down the road ahead of him with an army. And so he thinks, well, this is probably it. Uh, I'm going to meet my brother and he's going to have that grudge from all those years ago and he's going to kill me uh, and my family. So assuming he is a dead man, um, he has this moment of crisis. And in this moment of crisis, he has a particularly unique encounter with God. Uh, he wrestles with God. Um, and God breaks him, literally. Jacob is humbled. And if you remember the way I preached the story, I think he's converted. I think that's what that story is about. Lots of people have different views on it, but I think that's what happens in the story is that wrestling with God is the moment of, of Jacob's conversion, that he has been this, this, uh, sinful, uh, self-seeking person his whole life. And in that moment, um, he is humbled before God and is, is, becomes a new man in that moment. Um, he, Gets to his brother and miracle upon miracles. His brother is basically like, dude, I've forgotten about all that. It's totally fine. Um, they reconcile with each other. And if the story stopped there, you might think, man, this is great. It's like a happy ending. Like it was a story that you thought bad things were going to happen. And then it all worked out in the end. Except here's the problem. Uh, Jacob's new relationship with God does not negate the decades of baggage that he has created. Right. And we all know that. Every single one of us who has become a believer in Jesus Christ probably hope that, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus and all my problems are just going to magically go away because that's what Jesus is going to do, right? And we all very quickly found out, actually, most of our problems didn't go away, right? We just had a, a, a new skill set and a new helper uh, to deal with those problems, but we still had all the same problems that we had now had to work through, although work through in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so... Um, 
all that baggage that he has created and continues to create with his wives and sons starts coming to fruition. So the last of Jacob's sons, he has two final sons out of 13, 13 boys. And the last two were born, who were born Joseph and Benjamin. They are both born to that favored, pretty wife, Rachel, who after years of heartache and prayer is finally able to conceive. She has one son, um, Joseph, and then years later, she gives birth to a second son named Benjamin and tragically dies during childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And that's about the place that we enter into the story. When Joseph is now a teenager, and and we start to, again, immediately in this passage, get a pretty good picture of the dysfunction that still exists in the family. So starting in the second half of verse 2, it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Vilna and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph is 17. Uh, his, his brother, Benjamin, is probably a small child at this point. All of his brothers are older. They are all functionally grown men at this point. Joseph is finally sent out to work at shepherding with his older brothers, right? And so if you've, if you've had older siblings, maybe you remember a time where you weren't allowed to do the things that the older siblings were, and then finally you are. So he's sent out to work with the brothers as an apprentice. And the text makes that point, right, that he is a boy amongst men, essentially. And we don't have a ton of information about his brothers. Um, we just don't learn a lot about them in, in the course of, of the scriptures, um, but what we do have would not cause us to think that they are particularly faithful or even particularly honorable men. So let's think about a couple of the stories that we have read up to this point in Genesis. Our first encounter with two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, comes after the rape of their sister Dinah. When those two brothers, through a very interesting scenario, sneak into the city that belonged to her attacker and murder every man in the city. The next story we learn about is from Jacob's firstborn, his son Reuben, who we find commits incest with his father's wife and concubine, Bilhah, that is his half-brother's mother. Possibly out of an attempt to usurp his father in some way, possibly just out of lust, we, we don't know. But we do know this, in both cases, Jacob finds out about what his sons have done, and he is completely passive. He doesn't do anything. There is no punishment. He doesn't try to deal with it in any way. The following chapter, after the one we're reading now, we will find Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, in a tawdry, bizarre, incestuous visit to his daughter, in law who is posing as a prostitute. So anyway, the character of Jacob's sons, while we don't know everything about all of them, is painted as dishonorable and immoral. Contrasted with what we will see of Joseph, who, again, we have to say is one of the sterling characters of the Old Testament. There are certain characters who we look to, people like Daniel. Okay, um, who just are exemplary in their faithfulness to God. And Joseph is one of those characters. Um, 
Again, all that to say, it would not be hard to imagine that these brothers are out there in the fields keeping watch over their father's sheep, but that they are living in sinful and undesirable ways, given their track record. And then guess what? Joseph tattles on them. Now, I use that word tattles intentionally because it's funny how differently commentators understand what Joseph does when he tells his father how we perceive the concept of tattling. So is Joseph telling on his brothers a function of his brattiness or of his uprightness? Or both? We have sort of a funny relationship, I think, with tattlers and informants in our culture. Um, from childhood all the way through adulthood. Um, the informant the narc, the spy, the tattletale is respected by no one, okay? Nobody likes a tattletale. Uh, even the people who are benefited by the tattling, right? Even those people. And so I, I, I like cop dramas and stuff like that. And one of the things that you see in those cop dramas is like the cops always hate the informant. Right. He's worthless. He's scum, even though he's giving them the information that they can use to catch the bad guys or whatever. But it's because nobody has respect for a tattletale. Parents often don't even want their kids to be tattletales. Right. Um, and maybe that's just because we don't want to be bothered with every little thing that our child comes to us and informs us of about the kids in the neighborhood or their brothers and sisters or whatever. Um, as adults, we don't particularly like narcs or or whistleblowers when we get into the work world or something like that. And again, maybe that's because we like the idea that every once in a while I want to do whatever I want to do and I don't want anybody telling on me um, to my boss. So again, is Joseph a brat or is he impeccably moral? I think most people would say the former. In fact, I think every Sunday school lesson I've ever heard paints him as sort of this tattling little brat. But given his future character, I would at least give some credence to the latter. Um, his brothers are probably acting in dangerous and dishonoring ways to their father and his interests. And Joseph lets him know about it. But of course, that does nothing for his relationship with his brothers. That doesn't help it in any way. They already don't like him. Um, and now they don't like him any even more. And, and that is almost certainly because of what we see in verse three, which adds just some more interesting depth to, to the story. Verse three, it says, now Israel, Israel is Jacob. If you weren't aware of that, if you'd forgotten it, at, at a certain point, God changes Jacob's name, which means grasper, to the name of Israel, which basically means one who wrestles with God. And that's a great name for all of God's people, I think, in a sense. Those who wrestle with God. But he changes his name to Israel. And it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. So again, of all people, Jacob ought to know the consequences of parents playing favorites. He ought to know that if you go back and read his story. He had experienced the jealousy. He'd experienced the threat of violence for his life. And yet he favors Joseph over his other sons. And yes, while that is certainly a function of the fact that this was the long hoped for son of his favorite wife, in this passage, it tells us something specific. It says the reason he loved Joseph more is because Joseph was the son of his old age. 
So here's the thing that happens. This is a phenomenon that you see in the world. You may have seen it in your own families, and it causes a lot of heartache and a lot of drama in families even today. So men who have children when they are relatively young, right? You get married as a young man. You have children, uh, let's say, in your early 20s or something like that, right? And here's the reality. Some men just can't figure the fatherhood thing out. They just can't figure it out, right? Um, they have a hard time uh, shifting gears from single man into to fatherhood, um, and, and they make a mess of it. The truth is, is that probably all of us, the best we are doing is just sort of like muddling through the whole thing, right? We're just hoping that our first couple of kids come out kind of okay, right? Um, that's what, that's the best that many of us can hope for. But, but what we find is that many times there are fathers who, um, they, they, they can't figure out how to make that transition from singleness to marriedness to fatherhood. And, and, and they're not there for their families. They're not there for the kids. Maybe they end up in a divorce. Maybe they are estranged. Maybe they leave and go away somewhere else. Um, who knows? Jacob has made a mess of his early life. Uh, he's made a mess of his marriages. He's made a mess of his kids. He's made a mess of his early fatherhood. And then late in life, this new child shows up from this favored wife, this child that he has always asked for. And I have a feeling that it feels like a second chance to it. It feels like a moment where he can say, you know what? I, I did so poorly with all the other kids, but I can start afresh and I can make things right. And I can do well by this child and, and treat him the way uh, that he is, that, 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 a child deserves to be treated and a father should treat their children, right? And there's a goodness to that. There's an ability to that, right? There's only one problem. There are 11 other kids standing behind him going, yeah, man, but what about us? Like, what about who you were supposed to be for all of us? I think this happens all the time. I think probably we have, uh, many people have experienced this in their families and it causes a lot of tension. It causes a lot of, of confusion for the children who came early and for the children who came later. But Jacob in his favoritism to Joseph, he, he gives him this famous coat of many colors, right? Amazing technicolor dream coat. Um, and here's the interesting thing. The truth is that word that we translate coat of many colors, we actually have no idea what it means. Um, this is what we do know. The coat part, the coat or robe part, we're, we're sure that that's what that word means. But then there's this other word. And that word is only found one other place in all of Hebrew writing. We don't see it anywhere else. And that is in the book of one of the books of Samuel. And it's referring to, again, another coat that the princess Tamar who's the daughter of David, is wearing, okay? So again, all we know is that there are these two people who have these coats on, and these coats are, they're something, okay? Um, there's a couple of suspicions about what they are. Um, what The words are connected to the idea of the extremities, and so some people think that what it's saying is that it is a ankle and wrist length coat. It's going to the ends, right? Which would mean it is the coat that a person who sits at home wears. You don't wear your big, long coat to go work sheep, right? Um, that's the kind of coat that a person lounges around their home in. Um, that would indicate something, right? 
Jacob giving Joseph that coat would be saying, hey, you're not going to be the farmhand son. You're going to be the one who stays here and runs the show. That may be the implication there. Um, another implication is that the very connection between that coat and the coat that a princess wears later on in the Bible may mean that it, the coat itself represents royalty, that it represents the, the authority to rule, in which case what's going on is Jacob is saying, hey, Joseph, you are my chosen heir now. You are the one that is going to inherit my, my leadership and my mantle. And you go immediately, well, that's not any fair. What about the firstborn son? Shouldn't he get it? Well, you remember who that is? That's Reuben. He's the one who slept with his dad's wife. Nope, he's out. Not going to be the, not going to be the, 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 the leader. Okay. Well, let's take son number two, Simeon. Oh yeah. He was the one that murdered all the people, not him. Son number three, Levi. Oh yeah. He was the one that helped him strike three, right? What about son number four? Okay. Well, interestingly, son number four is Judah. So the fourth son in line and is, is this character named Judah. And as we're going to learn, Judah is in a way the, the new heir. Okay. That he has been given leadership in a particular way. And we see that play out because you'll remember. And again, if I'm, if I'm spoilers, um, if you've not read the book of Genesis, everybody thinks Joseph is dead by the end of this chapter. Okay. The brothers all know he's alive, but Joseph thinks he's dead. And so he can no longer be the favored child. And a lot of it seems throughout the rest of the, the, the story, the leadership and authority of the family rests on Judah. And that makes a lot of sense to us, right? Because we know who Judah is. Um, Judah in the prophecies that his father puts upon him and his blessing says, the scepter will not depart from you, Judah, that you will rule forever. And that what we find is that the line of Christ will actually come from Judah, that the lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus Christ. And he will come from Judah's family, not Joseph's, even though Joseph is the type He is the picture of the salvation that Christ is going to bring, and yet the actual salvation is going to come not through Joseph's line, but through Judah's line, okay? But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, and I know it's getting complex. Uh, Joseph will get the birthright, by the way. You know what it meant to get a birthright? When you got a birthright, that meant you got a double portion of the inheritance, right? So if you're two brothers... That means the birthright brother gets two-thirds and the other one gets one-third. When you got 13 brothers, all that means is you get, you know, one-fourteenth of the, or two-fourteenths of the, of the whole thing and your brothers all get one. But the way that works out is this. When we get to the end of the story, Joseph has gone to Egypt. He's an important man. He's rich. He's wealthy. He doesn't need anything from his father, Jacob. So what does Jacob do? Jacob takes Joseph's two sons and makes them count as his own sons, the sons who are Manasseh and Ephraim. They end up being one of the 12 tribes of Israel, even though technically they're not. They are grandsons of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? But basically Jacob counts them as if they are his own sons, in effect giving Joseph two portions of of the inheritance okay and so again we're, we're jumping way ahead but i'm trying to like preview some of these things um so let's pause here for a minute and just think about a little bit of application uh for all of this crazy story that we've read so far so here's the reality your family of origin is incredibly powerful in your life 
Okay. It's the reason why we all want to be good parents to our children, because we recognize that the, that the families we came from, the things that we were taught, the culture that we were raised in is super influential on, on us and it can bless you or it can screw you up in any number of ways. So obviously it's popular in our pop psychology kind of world to trace all of our problems back to our families and the trauma that we have experienced, whether real or imaginary. But I think it's still true is that we know that those experiences have incredible effects on the rest of our lives, the way we raise our own families, the way we engage with the world around us, the way we feel and see our own lives and actions. And so here's the cool thing. This is a story about how God has chosen somebody irrespective of their baggage. That God has looked at Joseph and looked at Jacob and Isaac and Abraham before them. And he has said, I know what a mess your family is in and all of the things that have gone on there. And yet I intend to use you in incredible ways in spite of all of that baggage. It's a story about how God took messed up Abraham and messed up Isaac and messed up Jacob and wants to redeem that family and give them a home and a hope and a future. And so all of that to say, uh, you are not your baggage. You got all kinds of stuff you've brought with you. You are not your baggage. It may define your past, but it does not determine your present and it need not decide your future. You can change those things because Jesus Christ comes in and makes all those things new and changes the trajectory, changes the storyline. It allows you to let go of all that stuff and put it down and walk in in a new life. And by the time we get to the end of the story, here's something that's amazing is the anger and the jealousy that we see at the beginning of the story has really kind of mellowed. And it seems like it's just mellowed by God working on people over the course of time. And mostly all that's left is sorrow and regret at the end of the story. And yet that leads into an opportunity for repentance and reconciliation with this family when they meet together again in Egypt. So I heard a cool quote the other day, and I think it, it it's it's great. It says, you enter adolescence when you realize your parents can be wrong. And you enter adulthood when you forgive them for it. And I think that's it. Um, and I think that's kind of the step that we see in this passage is, is you get to a place by the end of the story where you have brothers who have, have, fought and hated and in all this mess, but they've gotten to a place where they realize all the carnage they've caused and they just wish they could kind of go back and make things right. And they do their best to do that. And in the end, God does this incredible work, working through all the sin and evil and bringing good out of it. So for all these reasons and more, the family baggage, the favoritism, um, maybe even some of the petulant uh, naivete on the part of Joseph, um, All this comes together, and it says, verse 4, when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And then to add insult to injury, the already bruised egos of the brothers, Joseph has these two dreams. 
So you're going to notice something when we go through this book. Two keeps on popping up. There are two incidents over and over again. There are two dreams. There are two people that he meets in prisons. There are um, two, uh, in, there's all these twos in it. And we find out why that is later on, but, but we're, we won't jump ahead that far. We'll we'll talk about that one in, in the coming weeks. But notice that as we go, there are all these doubling of events as we go throughout the book. And so Joseph has this new dream, right? Um, he has this dream where he says, um, we were shearing uh, wheat. We were bringing our sheaves together. All of your sheaves, brothers, bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers immediately know what that means. And they say, are you going to rule over us? Are you going to be our ruler in some way? Dreams were big deals in the ancient world. Um, people saw dreams as having being the way that God revealed things um, to the world. We see that in the book of Genesis. Up until this point, dreams have taken, uh, tended to um, uh, uh, bring some pretty big revelations from God to his people earlier in the story of Genesis. Usually, though, it's a little more direct. God actually says something and speaks a word to somebody. But with Joseph, he gets these visions. But then he is also given the ability to interpret those visions. And so Joseph's dream is symbolic, um, but it's the, the answer to it is that he will rule over his brothers. So again, we're confronted with this question of Joseph's character. Is this him bragging? Like, is this him just being another brat? Is this another uh, situation where it's sort of like, hey, I don't know if you knew this, brothers, but I'm going to rule over you guys one day, you know? Is, is, is that what's going on here? Or is he just being honest? In either case, I think he's definitely being naive, right? Uh, Joseph needs to learn how to read a room, okay? Um, he needs to be able to look out at a group of people um, who already hate him and find a more diplomatic way of saying, hey, by the way, one day I'm going to be all you guys' boss, right? Um, but here's the thing. What he's saying is completely true. The dream is from God, and it predicts future events that by God's providence he will bring to pass, and so we can't know whether or not there was arrogance in his delivery of that information, but we know that there is only truth in the content of it, right? He is telling exactly what God has told him and what is going to happen. And so, of course, um, if God has chosen Joseph over his brothers, no one would be particularly surprised about that if you've read the rest of the book of Genesis. Uh, we've talked about that very recently. We have a God who chooses people. That's just what he does. God loved Jacob, and he hated Esau. He chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Abraham for no perceivable reason, right? Like, literally, Abraham seems like he is a pagan walking around in the desert, and God says, I think you're my new guy. I want you to be the beginning of this whole plan that I'm going to do for all of time. You could almost say that God picked Abraham unconditionally. Right. With nothing else in except for his sovereign will. And that's exactly what we see. And so he chooses Joseph. And in the choosing and by this dream, God reveals his plan for Israel and, and that it will come to fruition. His brothers are predictably infuriated by that. Right. Um, but the offense of God's sovereignty is only intensified by the doubling of the dream because Joseph has another dream. This time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to him, and they all recognize that the sun is the father and the moon is the mother and the 11 stars are the brothers, and so 
Joseph has not only been chosen to rule over his brothers, but his parents as well. Because again, there's far more at stake than just inheritances and birthrights. The fate of this family is at stake. In fact, the fate of the whole world or the known world at the time is resting on Joseph's future. And God is going to save Israel and he's going to save the world. And he will accomplish this because God has chosen him. Not because Joseph is awesome. He is a person of character, but his character would not win him any ability to do what he has to do. It is because he is the favored son, not only of his earthly father, but he's the favored son of his heavenly father. So again, I hope as we have walked through this story thus far, you have already started to see the foreshadowing. The prefiguring in the life of Joseph that will be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate chosen son. He's the ultimate favored son. He is the only begotten son of his father. And guess what? He came, John 1, 11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected by his own people. Jesus, even to a greater extent, will rule over his earthly fathers. One of the things that Jesus talks about when he's ministering is he says, man, how is it that the Messiah is the child of King David and yet King David worships him? That's not the way it's supposed to go. Children are always subservient to their parents. And yet for some reason, this descendant of David has found a way to be elevated over David. How is that possible? The great David will call the greater Jesus Lord. And it will not only be God's favor that rests on him, but the salvation of the world will rest on Jesus. Jesus comes to save, but this time not just through from famine and starvation like Joseph does, as the first dream symbolizes, but he comes to save from sin and suffering by his own, or save from sin by his own suffering and sacrifice. And the Bible says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. God is going to see these things through. And that's one of the other big picture things that I want you to see in this story is the idea of the providence of God. The idea that God is working his plans out in accordance with his will and he is lining things up to where, man, you don't know what's going on. You don't see the pieces coming together, but then in hindsight, it all becomes clear. God's plans are mysterious. They are unstoppable. We oftentimes throughout our lives will look up at the heavens and just sort of say, God, why did it have to happen this way? Why, why did you decide to do it this way? The reality is, is we rarely get an answer. You may be in a position like that right now. You may be in a position like that in the near future where you look to God and say, God, why did you do things this way? And I can almost guarantee you, you will not get an answer. Sometimes we get an answer in hindsight. And other than that, we hope and pray that one day farther along in the hereafter that we will understand why. But I love verse 11. And that's what we'll close on tonight. I know we're going a little late, but it was, it was, a, it was a lot of stuff to all condense into one sermon for the first one. Verse 11 says, and his brothers were jealous of him. Yep. But his father kept the saying in mind. So the brothers hate the decree of God. And we will soon see that they try to defy it, which is stupid and impossible. It's not going to work. 
In fact, it's actually going to end up being the means by which God accomplishes those things. But Jacob, on the other hand, even though he is offended by the dream that says his son is going to rule over him, it says he kept these sayings in his mind. I think the reason for that is that Jacob has experienced the strange providence of God before. If you go back and read his story, weird things happen and weird timing happens. And this story is all about providence, about God sovereignly working out his plans. And so Jacob knows about God's providence. He knows that God has weird plans sometimes. He knows that God chooses younger sons to rule over the older. He knows that God sometimes picks the person you would at least expect to be the one that he works through. Jacob knows about wrestling with God. And he knows that those who attempt to fight against God usually end up getting humbled in the process. That line, the father kept these sayings in his mind, reminds me a whole lot of what it says about Mary. As she watches the weird things that Jesus is doing as a young child and his encounter at the temple um, and sitting, teaching the teachers in the temple. And it talks about the fact that, that, that Mary treasured these things in her heart and, and, and pondered them. That's what we should do as well. As we experience the difficult things of providence in our lives, when the strange and difficult occurrences confuse us, instead of responding in doubt, instead of responding in fear, let's keep these things in our minds. Let's ponder them in our hearts and with faith and hope, trust in God and say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you are going to work these things out. I know that you are going to see these things through fruition. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.